It's really hard as an entrepreneur in a former life. You're always wondering um, who and how you can trust and with what. You are listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas, venture capital investors, and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Today's guest is Gautam Godwani. He's the managing partner at Good Startup a new venture capital firm focused on alternative protein. We'll find out what that is and the kind of startups he looks to invest in. Gautam, welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Pleasure to be on. Gautam, tell us about yourself starting with your professional career. Where did it start? Give us a quick journey of your career over the years until today. Sure. I started way back to give you some context, my life in Delhi, but moved to the US when I was nine years old. I grew up in Silicon Valley around the software industry. My education was at Berkeley in computer science. So my career began really walking around the halls of some of the large companies at the time, which were Microsoft, IBM, Hewlett Packard. But I started my first company just a couple of years out of school. This was in the early days of the internet. And just fell in love with building startups. That has become a 20 plus year journey now where I've had an opportunity to build two businesses, one nonprofit, and now a fund. And in the process between my brother and I, who have worked together a lot of our careers, we've invested in, in between 50 and 100 companies and funds. You started with your career as an entrepreneur and you've had successful stints at it. What attracted you to become an investor? My love from a professional standpoint has always been on the entrepreneurial side. I love the idea of building businesses because as I went through the entrepreneurial process, it was an opportunity to really create something out of nothing and was very addicted to the fact that it was the steepest learning curve I had ever been on. So as I saw some success with the exit of my first company, I started to have entrepreneurs approach me and it was a curious thing because I wasn't even sure what I had learned. It was a really fast three years before our first company was acquired. But as I started sitting down and speaking with entrepreneurs, I found that there were parts of my journey that were very relevant for the journey that they were on. So the idea of supporting them investing in their startup and helping them in whatever way I could became very attractive. You could say in a sense that I just fell into it, but then saw that there was really an opportunity to make a contribution. Your first company was AtWeb and it was in the early days of the internet and you went on to found Simply Hired and later Habitera. What are some themes that you picked up now that helps you as an investor? Do you look for entrepreneurs like yourself? Do you look for some qualities that resonate with you where you saw that worked well for you? How do you think about investing when you're meeting entrepreneurs now? Like a lot of investors, looking at a new company begins with quality of team and quality of idea. So you're sitting across from the entrepreneur and really trying to understand why it is that they're doing what they're doing. And for me, the why has always been much more important than the what. I really want to understand what is it that got this entrepreneur down this journey. And the reason that that's so important is because the startup experience, those years of building businesses are so difficult that every entrepreneur, every company has its ups and downs. 
And when you go through one of those downs, which you invariably will, that why is the only thing that will save you. So I want to get comfort that this is something that the entrepreneur wants to do more than anything else. And from there, we talk about the idea, talk about the other aspects of the business, really look at the vision and see how this might become a big company. But for me, it begins with the why. Why is a great question to ask. It hits on the topic of purpose. Why do you exist? Why is this important for you? When you think about that topic as an entrepreneur, it's a different mindset compared to asking the question as an observer from the outside. Did you have to change your mindset? And this is something that's really fascinating to me when an entrepreneur decides to move to the other side of the table and become an investor. It is a huge change in the mindset. How do you approach the questions now that you're on the other side of the table? Is there a process that you went through now you feel like you're no longer the striker in the middle of the field, but you're an investor on the side coaching the entrepreneur? Obviously, I've been an investor for a long time, but you are absolutely correct that going on the other side of the table, so to speak, for me, it felt like I was doing so when I became an institutional investor at the point where I took other people's money and said, let me invest this for you. And for me, being a guardian of other people's money is a special responsibility. So in that process, I find that one has to be a lot more process-oriented, a lot more communication-oriented. This is not only about making sure that we treat the money of the limited partners with great care, it's also about making sure that we follow up and make sure that the LPs are aware of where we are in that process at any given time. We are very fortunate to have some very supportive limited partners that are deeply interested, not only in the work that we're doing, but the cause behind it. And so it's been great to be able to interact with them and to invest in these companies, keeping in mind that we have to follow a more stringent, diligent process. We have to be a lot more communicative than certainly I need to be if I'm just investing my own money or if I happen to believe in an entrepreneur and I'm supporting them in any way that I feel is the best thing to do. Do you ever feel like you need to hold back? You know exactly what needs to be done. If you were the founder or if you were the CEO of a company, you would make certain decisions, but you are not in those seats, but you can see the problem, how it should be solved. But you have to step back and let the founders and the CEOs manage their business and you have to hold back on your urge to jump in. Do you ever feel that? In addition to investing in a number of these companies, Obviously, I've been on a number of boards over the years. And being an entrepreneur, there was a board of directors that I had to interact with and to manage. I learned a lot of lessons about how to be a better board member, how to be a better advisor, really by observing a lot of other examples and just through a lot of trial and error. It's critical that both board members and advisors really think about the role and what it is that the entrepreneur needs. In a nutshell, I would say it's just about helping the entrepreneur in the way that they want help. As an advisor, I believe that you have to earn the right to get the call from the entrepreneur. It's a privilege that the entrepreneur decides that you're going to be the first call that they make if they're facing a challenging problem. The idea that somehow you can go and prescribe to the entrepreneur what they need to do when they aren't looking or asking for help in that area, I don't think is very productive. And it's certainly not something that I would want to do. So a lot of what I've tried to do over the years is to offer my help and just be there and support when the entrepreneur wants that help. 
And in some cases they do, and in other cases they don't need my help or, or they have places where they can get help, which is great. As a board member, I also think that the job of the board, in addition to governance matters, is to make sure that the right CEO is running the company. In my view, it is not to offer a range of unsolicited advice or to get involved in matters where the CEO really isn't looking for help. Candidly, over the years, I found that a lot of board members didn't have clarity about what that role needs to be. So both as a board member and as an advisor, it's critical to support the entrepreneur in the way that they want to be supported. You beautifully articulate the role of a good investor. We talked about your background, and I want to jump into the present and ask you about good startup. Can you give a description of what is good startup? What is the fund about? And why do you focus on alternative protein? Good Startup's mission is to remove animals from the food system. We are a venture capital firm that today runs a 30 million US dollar fund that invests in companies that are creating products around alternative proteins, products that are substitutes for meat, seafood, dairy, and eggs, which are the animal foods, as well as materials like leather and wool and silk that come out of animals, as well as ancillary markets like pet foods. We invest in companies across all stages, though early stages really are sweet spot, where we write checks of two hundred dollars to $500,000 that are utilizing a range of technologies such as plant-based technologies, cell-based technologies where you're growing the meat outside the animal, and microorganism-based technologies, things like fungi. And so we are focused as a mission-driven fund to create companies that ultimately remove animals from the food system, which really is, is about the impact side, and then, of course, deliver a great return to our limited partners, which is the economic side, and, of course, the technology behind it. So we're really sitting at this nexus behind impact and economics and technology. What was the genesis of this idea, the mission to remove animals from the food ecosystem? What was the inspiration for that? My last company sold in 2016. After that, I felt like I wanted to step away and take a bit of a break. I was living in Silicon Valley at the time, so I pulled myself up in my apartment in San Francisco and was taking classes at the City College in sustainability and in Mandarin, two topics I was quite interested in. Sustainability and Mandarin. I'm curious to see where this story is going. Yes. And let me save you the suspense to say that I enjoyed my Mandarin classes immensely, but they were highly unproductive. <laughs> that remains an aspiration. So as I was taking some time off, I received advice from a friend of mine, which really resonated with me. He said, now that you have some time, do me a favor and don't fill it in. I really took that to heart and left a lot of open time. One evening, I stumbled across a documentary that was focused on animal welfare and about the treatment of farm animals globally. And in addition to slaughtering 60 to 70 billion land animals a year, we also kill over 1 trillion fish. But the really sad part is that for a lot of both land animals and fish, particularly farm fish, there's a great deal of suffering that's involved before the slaughter even arrives. This was the type of thing where once I looked, I just couldn't look away. And the more I looked, the worse it got. So I ended up watching documentary after documentary, video after video. I went in and started to get involved with the movement. I started to attend conferences, started to read books and articles. And that was around 2017. And four years later, the same is true. I can't look away. And the more I look, the worse it gets. 
So I wasn't ready for my next project at the time. But last year, when I was ready for my next project, I knew that I wanted to focus on alternative proteins. Because ultimately, the animal agriculture sector is one where there is a huge amount of demand. The demand for animal products is going straight up into the right. And in 2050, when we have a population of 10 billion people and a much larger middle class by percentage of our population, meat consumption will nearly double. So we have a situation where no one is out to harm the animals. Nobody got up in the morning and said that we want to harm animals. But we have gotten ourselves into a system where people simply by eating food they love and by just eating the food that they grew up eating, there is a lot of harm coming to the planet. We all have to look in the mirror and say, what do we do about this? And we have technologies available so that we can offer alternatives to people so that we eat food that is not only better for us, but it's better for the planet and better for the animals. This is a huge opportunity to be able to improve the lives of animals, make the planet better, and also eat food that is actually healthier and better for us. A lot of things are going up and to the right. The market's been hot for many years. And I see that the food sector as well has a lot of innovation coming through and everything's hyper demand mode right now. Is it really a hype or is there real demand behind these kind of solutions like alternative proteins and removing animals out of the food chain? There has been incredible innovation over the last eight to 10 years in this sector. There is no question that companies like Beyond Meat, Impossible Foods, Oatly, and a range of other companies have created some amazing food that is in demand by consumers. But it's important to appreciate that as a sector, alternative proteins today are only about $20 billion in size. Keep in mind, this is compared to an animal agriculture sector that is approximately $2 trillion in size. So alternative proteins are roughly at about 1% of the market. Ultimately, to tap the mainstream consumer, we have to have products that reach both taste and price parity. And we are some ways from there. Companies are rapidly advancing in this area. New technologies are being utilized to create just a huge number of interesting new products that raise the bar again and again. I remain very optimistic that we will create products that reach taste and price parity, but it is very early. As someone that started his first company in 1996, I very much view that this is that 1995 moment for alternative proteins. We are right at the beginning of a massive transformation of the entire food system. We've been engineering food for a long time, but we've just done it using food science and ingredients. We are now engineering food using biotechnology and molecules. And in our view, that is as fundamental a change as the transistor was for the information age. The food industry is a few trillion dollars and it's an integral part of our everyday life. I can see why you have such a strong conviction about the future of this industry. What do you look for in startups when you meet them in this space? And how is building a business in this sector different from other industries? Our investment thesis, in addition to really looking at the founders and what I talked about relative to how we feel about and what we look for in founders, we look for companies that have core technology. When you look at where we are with alternative proteins and the aspiration to reach taste and price parity, this is not a scale problem. It is an innovation problem. And so we begin with companies that are innovating using technology. We also look for companies that have defined a pathway to market. 
They don't need to be in market, but we need to be comfortable with how they will commercialize their products so that they aren't so much in a stage of research for a very long time without knowing where they will end up when it comes to market development. We also like to see founder CEOs running their companies, and we also like to see founding teams with substantial ownership. You might say that the last two perhaps are true with a lot of companies, but we actually see quite a bit of variation in this industry. We like to see companies that are operationally really, really buttoned up. That's just a bias, perhaps, that myself and my partner, Jayesh, have because we've been building businesses for much of our lives. In terms of how this industry is different, this idea of disruption gets a lot of attention <laughs> across industries. People talk about, we want to be disruptive in this way or that way. To a greater extent in technology, one can speak about disruption because if you create a new product, first of all, the product is entirely virtual. If you're a consumer product and you want advertising, you just spin up Facebook or Google. If you want more computing power, you go to Amazon Web Services. If you want any manner of technology, you can go to a range of SaaS companies and just create that. People will learn about you and pass the word aggressively through social media. So technology has a way of creating disruption because it is all digital. In the food industry, this is not the case. Food is not only not digital, but this is something that we're putting into our bodies. And it is uh, rooted in our culture in a very fundamental way. So the role of governments, the role of incumbents in the industry, the role of even research institutions becomes much, much more critical. It's very important for companies in this space to find a pathway so that they can get regulatory clearance for their products. It's very important to engage incumbents who are either part of the supply chain or can help with distribution or with manufacturing or scale-up or help expand the company across to international markets or new segments. So thinking about the strategy much more holistically becomes much more critical in this sector compared to a sector like technology. I can see why this industry is different from the typical software industry. You cannot eat ones and zeros and douse your appetite. You have to eat tangible things. And that comes from products that you can touch and feel. I want to get into more details about this, but I want to first understand what stage do you invest? What's your typical startup you invest in? What areas, geographies do you invest in? We are a multi-stage fund. Our sweet spot is early stage companies where we typically write initial check sizes of 250,000. But as companies grow and they get to mid and late stage, we will also invest in those companies. And typically our check size is $500,000 there. For every dollar that we invest, we also keep a dollar in reserve so we can support the companies that are growing on an ongoing basis. As a global multi-stage investor, we certainly are very flexible in where the company is located or what stage they're in but we are very strictly focused on alternative proteins. We are a food and materials fund. That means plant-based, cell-based, and microorganism-based technologies. We don't invest in insect proteins. We don't invest in all digital enablers. We don't invest in delivery services. So we actually are able to figure out if we're interested in a company fairly fast because our thesis is quite narrow. And since all we do is focus on the sector, we can move very rapidly through the diligence and investment process if required. This is very helpful. You're giving practical details on what you're looking for. What questions do you ask founders in the first one or two meetings? We're really doing diligence in companies across three areas. The first is operational diligence. That is the area that we begin with. That is the stage where after speaking with most startups, we typically don't move forward, unfortunately. 
that is a conversation in which we are learning about the founder, learning about the idea, the pathway to market, IP protection, defensibility, the organization, the cap table, the fundraising strategy. There's a range of questions that we go through in that initial meeting. If we are compelled to learn more, and usually it's one of the two partners in this fund that, that has that conversation, then we would have a second meeting. Usually their management team comes on and both partners come on and we go into greater detail about those same topics. Often we will have follow-up questions or there'll be materials we would have looked at. So we would go deeper into examining those materials. Once we are comfortable on the operational side, we move on to technical diligence since we are looking at companies with core technology. My partner Jayesh and I are operators. We aren't from the food or biotechnology industry. So typically that diligence is done by a member of our scientific advisory team. This is a number of folks that are a part of our extended team and they usually have a background that is highly relevant since they have complementary expertise um, to that particular startup. They look at the diligence materials, speak with the founders or the technical team, come back and speak with us and help us to round out the diligence. That's the technical diligence side. Once we move past that, we go to market diligence. And because of our check size, we are really agnostic about whether we lead a round or whether we participate in the round and there's another lead. But whether it's the lead of the round or in-country or in-market experts, we are then doing market diligence, which might mean references on the founders, references on the company, looking at dynamics of the market, speaking to other investors or the lead, doing customer references, things like that. That's the range of diligence that we go through before we finalize an investment. Obviously, the final diligence looks at the documentation and the actual terms before we move forward on an investment. Can you give examples of one or two startups? How was your interaction with them in the first few meetings? What impressed you in those discussions? Sure. Over the last quarter, we invested in a company called Nowadays. This is a wonderful company that is at an early stage has two founders, what they're doing is creating clean label plant-based chicken. Clean label means that it is an ingredient label that has fewer ingredients that are all healthier and easier to pronounce, things that you can actually understand, and also a nutrition label that is much better than what you might find in alternatives. So the two founders are extremely passionate, but what's interesting is that they are passionate in different parts of the related space. For example, the passion might range from the animal welfare movement to creating really healthy food to actually being passionate around the culinary side of this. So it's a mix of different areas that they're passionate about. And so from the moment that we spoke to the founders, it was evident that the why for them was very strong. And while it was even different for the founders, it intersected at creating a plant-based product that was very healthy because that was a product that was better for animals, but it was also better for their kids. We really loved where that intersection occurred. It's also one of the most thoughtful teams that I had come across, very aware of what it is that they had going for them and where they needed to do more work. I have found, at least in my own startup experience, that it's not so much what you don't know that is really dangerous, because that you can typically mitigate either by going and finding folks that know something about it, learning about it, or hiring folks on the team that know something about it. It's what you don't know you don't know that is really dangerous. And that is a process of discovery and of self-awareness where that leads you in different directions where you start to look at different new interesting areas and say, wow, this is either an opportunity or it's a risk. So we found that the team was extremely self-aware and continuously looking for areas where they could improve. 
while the segment that they were entering was highly competitive and while they were at an early stage, they had managed to create a highly differentiated product, which was not surprising to me given what I understood about the characteristics of the team. They had also designed their technology platform in a way where there was a two-step development process so that even when they outsourced a lot of the manufacturing as startups do in this space, their IP was well protected. They had formulated partnerships with incumbents that could help them create some of that scaling. And they were paying a lot of attention to both the talent and the culture that they were bringing into the company, even at a very early stage. We were just bowled over by the approach of the founding team and even what they had accomplished in a very short time. This sounds like the story of passionate founders and they were genuinely inspired to solve a problem and they were committed to it. And you picked up on their stories very early through the conversations you had with them. What happens when entrepreneurs pitch to you and they do something that just ticks you off? You're not getting this full story the way you want it. What are some common mistakes that entrepreneurs make that make it difficult for you to understand the business? Entrepreneur's journey is a challenging one because you're coming across so many constituents and you're saying so much about something you care a lot about without knowing a lot from the other side. One of the things that I try to do is I begin the conversation by introducing ourselves and talking a bit about our philosophy so that they have a sense of what we're about and what's important to us. Our hope is that that gives the entrepreneur some comfort that we are extremely sensitive to the entrepreneur's journey and remain very inspired by the work that they're doing. We find that entrepreneurs sometimes aren't as forthcoming because perhaps there's a huge amount of value placed on, say, the idea, and they aren't willing to share information. When the intent isn't to use that information against them, the intent is only to make a better investment. I don't want to live a life where I'm trying to steal entrepreneurs' ideas or to expose their ideas. But even if I were, the idea isn't the salient part of the entrepreneurial journey. It is the execution. It is the persistence. And well, I'm hopeful that entrepreneurs get some comfort from the fact that most venture capitalists are not out to do that. Because from a practical perspective, even if they did, they wouldn't be in business very long. And from an ethical perspective, I don't know how one would sleep at night doing that. So I would urge entrepreneurs just to be open to the idea that there is the best of intent on the other side, that there is a genuine desire to understand the business and to help. Yeah, sometimes when entrepreneurs are very cagey about their business, the business idea on how they want to build their products and services, it becomes difficult to form a strong conviction without knowing much, especially first-time entrepreneurs who are not familiar with the venture capital way of doing things. They are reluctant and that doesn't help. You're right that we have to trust and good venture capital investors know how to treat this information with respect and integrity. It's really hard. As an entrepreneur in a former life, you're always wondering um, who and how you can trust and with what. It's a very common sentiment. But my intent was only just to say that you will find that most people really want to do the right thing. I want to switch to the next part of our conversation and ask you about your community involvement. Is there a nonprofit organization you are passionate about? Which one? Between my first and second startups, my brother and I founded a nonprofit in the San Francisco Bay Area. It is called India Community Center, and it is now about 20 years old. 
We have raised about 40 million in funding to date. Now the organization operates several facilities in the San Francisco Bay Area, runs about 500 community events and programs annually, including a preschool, summer camp, senior programs, a lot of health and wellness programs, and a number of community events. That was a two-year full-time journey, myself and my brother, to set it up and have been a trustee since then. Gautam, thank you so much for spending time with me and sharing details about your journey through entrepreneurship and now as an investor, and especially the topics that you are looking for now to make a huge difference in how food is consumed. This is a very important topic, and I look forward to sharing your nuggets of wisdom with the world. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to the SureShot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real-life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode. 